Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Daniel Hill. Welcome, Dr. Hill. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with y'all. It's good to have you. Uh, you're no stranger to the G3 Project. You were with us for Courageous Conversations. Uh, you uh, were brave enough to sit at that uh, that table, the hot seat, to talk about so- something so easy, hell. Mm. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can't get an easier subject than hell. For those, <laughs> for those who don't know who you are, Dr. Hill, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm Daniel Hill, uh, one of many Daniel Hills, unfortunately. Unfortunately, uh, mm-hmm. I was born outside of Chicago. I uh, came a, became a Christian at the Hampton University, the real HU. Um, for all those Howard, uh, you know, watchers out there, mm-hmm. and uh, became a Christian in college. Uh, moved down to Houston, where I taught for a couple years in a middle school, and then um, went to seminary. And I attended Dallas Seminary for four years while working for a church and then moved up to Wheaton College where I did a PhD with Mark Cortez and helped start a school up there. And then I teach now at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary here in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas. So I've been kind of orbiting all around the country and have landed back in the in the land of Tex-Mex. Well, today we're going to be talking about something um, as easy as uh, hell. Uh, <laughs> what does it mean to be human? Uh, tell our audience there is a fancy theological term for it, but uh, I think the gist of it is is what it means to be human. Tell our audience a little bit about how it how that flushes out theologically. Yeah, so there are a lot of folks who have a lot of things to say, a lot of different disciplines about what it means to be a human creature, and they all have valuable, valuable uh, contributions. So sociologists on one hand and biologists on another, um, you know, philosophers, can t- philosophers of mind, neuroscientists, they all can contribute to telling you about uh, what it means to be a human being as opposed to, you know, a eukaryote or a, a orca. But when we talk about a human creature, we're making a theological claim. We're saying that we are not self-existent, that we were made by a creator and are defined in relationship to that creator. And so from there come a whole host of uh, different questions and concerns that theological anthropology tries to engage. What is uh, work, vocation? Uh, what is the meaning of marriage, singleness? Um, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Why do human beings have dignity, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and that all kind of ties in and falls under this heading of, no, we're not just one well, we are on one sense just one of many creatures, but there's something unique about us. And and what is that unique thing? And so 
theological anthropologists such as myself try and flesh that out. Mm -hmm. So the million dollar question is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Yeah, that is the question of questions. I was reading uh, Theodore Wright um, a couple of days ago and uh, Maria Stewart this morning, honestly. They both are abolitionists in the 18th century or 19th century, sorry. And they're both making this claim, hey, I deserve freedom. Uh, my people deserve freedom because I'm an image bearer of God. And of course, why do you have to make that claim? And what does it mean is the, the question. So there are three typical answers. One is what we call the substantial approach, saying that there's some property you possess that differentiates you from all the other creatures, whether it's reason or righteousness or something like that, rationality. Another is to say it's relational so that you exist in relationships. You image the Trinity, just like God is this uh, community of relationships. So are human beings. And then the last approach is the functional, which is that you are you have a particular vocation God has given you um, and uh, that, yeah, that he sent you out to be his priest kings in creation. Um, I take a bit of a hybrid view, uh, which is I'm coining the mediatorial or instrumental account, which mm. is to say that God has given a particular vocation, but it's a promise of what he will do in and through us as opposed to a, a task we carry out uh, based on some capacities we have. Uh, that God has promised to make his word, his presence, and his rule known in and through human creatures. Mm -hmm. Flush that out a little bit for our audience and how does that uh, connect with them on an everyday basis? Yeah, I think uh, one of the most practical, and this, I'm sorry, in advance, it's going to be a little dark. <laughs> one of the <laughs> practical ways that it fleshes itself out in, in, in my, my book is uh, we all are going to have, we all have a bunch of powers and capacities. So reasoning or, you know, walking around, most of us, not everyone, but a lot of people have these varying capacities. But what we tend to forget is that they're all going to wane. Mm. Um, eventually you're going to grow old and your reason is, your rationality is going to fade. Your powers of movement are going to be restrained and restricted. Um, and, and some folks, that's their condition, th their entire existence. So if you, uh, have muscular dystrophy or um, severe cognitive impairment. You don't have these kind of what we would say normal powers of movement. And I'm using scare quotes around the word normal. Uh, and so what that can suggest is that, well, if this person can't reason, are they in the image of God or an infant or someone with dementia? Are they still in the image of God if they've lost the power of reason? Uh, and so I think my approach, one of the goods it has, besides, I think, uh, that I could make the argument through the scriptures of how we are made in the image of God, whereas Jesus Christ just is the image of God, but that's a larger conversation, is when your capacities are waning, when your powers are waning, you are still someone who has been commissioned by God, and God has made a promise to do something in and through uh, your continued existence. Uh, so just in virtue of you being present, God is at work in and through your life. Mm -hmm. That's helpful because I think, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought about, you know, people losing certain capabilities, th people thinking these people are not made in the image of God because they if you the way you define it shapes how if you lose certain things, how people could kind of redefine it in a sense. Yeah. Am I, are you following me and what yeah. I'm saying? Um, so that's that's a 
that's a fantastic point that you you brought out. As 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 you were talking, I began to think about like the development of AI and um, <laughs> robots. Uh, have you thought through how how that how this conversation will impact uh, the next generation of technology? Have you did any any work with that? No, I honestly have. I've done most of my work going the opposite direction. So <laughs> uh, I always ask one of my my students, like, if someone served you a orangutan, would you eat it? Why or why not? And um, trying to gesture at, you know, an orangutan might be able to reason a little bit better than an infant. Uh, infants mm-hmm. don't have object permanence, but I. I think that's one of the, um, it'll be an interesting question folks are going to have to wrestle with is at at this point, it seems to be the case that we can program, you know, technology to carry out functions that we've told it to do. So the best chess player in the world can't beat a computer at this point. Um, But the computer couldn't create something new on its own Mm -hmm. um, in the, in the way that that chess player, you know, potentially could. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how these conversations get brought. Uh, these conversations get brought into dialogue with, okay, so we've got, you know, robots walking around or um, in Japan, I saw a couple months ago that they have robots stocking shelves. Do How do you adjudicate between robot and human rights? Uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, definitely. When we think about personhood, what do you think the biggest challenge in that conversation is? Yeah, I think on a like academic level, it's trying to define what is personhood on a more lay level um, outside of the kind of ivory tower. Tower, It's what are, um, we tend to think more about rights than about duties. So what are, are there specific duties that come with being a person um, that I should perhaps seek the flourishing of other persons is kind of uh, part and parcel of my responsibility as a person. Um, I think uh, that, kind of framework even then shapes how we understand things like rights and understand things like dignity. But I think one of the hardest hardest things for folks to wrestle with is, okay, well, what are my rights? What are the extent of those rights? Where are those rights located? Um, what are they based in? What happens when my rights, you know, rub up against someone else's rights? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, where are the kind of boundaries of my person? Um, and how much do I have responsibility over? So I'll ask you those questions. Okay. Uh, what are <laughs> what are the the boundaries of your what person and what do you have responsibility over? Yeah, so I I would prefer to talk more in terms of duties um, mm-hmm. because there are there's a sense in which you are a this is getting a little bit in the weeds, but you're a host. You know, you've got organisms that aren't a part of you that are just kind of along for the ride that you need to take care of. Uh, so there's a some bacteria in your gut that if you aren't kind to, it won't help you with the digestive process. Um, and so you have to be responsible for caring for that things. Um, but yeah, so I would say one of the duties of a person um, is to care for the, to seek the flourishing of other persons uh, mm-hmm. uh, insofar as it's possible. Of course, there are uh, boundaries on our ability to, you know, if someone has an advanced stage of cancer, I can't cure that cancer. That's not really within my uh, capacities. And so some of my duties are going to be restrained and limited. But I think one of our, um, because we kind of sit in a nexus of relationships, so I have responsibilities to seek the good of those around me and to view my flourishing as tied to theirs. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's that gives us into the justice conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, because when people don't see uh, the flourishing as other uh, of others as a part of their duty, then injustice begins to flourish. Um, yeah. How have you seen that conversation? What is the intersection between your research and, and justice work? Yeah, so I look a little bit into, I'm doing some work right now in the evolutionary era. I've kind of already uh, shouted out Theodore Wright and uh, Maria Stewart, but David Ruggles would be another one that I've done some reading in and writing on. Um, and you frequently see that there's a tendency to denigrate the humanity of someone else as a uh, kind of writ of passage to do whatever you want to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the um, 1700s and, and 1800s, it was pretty much accepted that people uh, people with darker skin, um, if you can catch my drift, are uh, un- were, you know, uncultured, lacking in virtue, um, and fit only to be enslaved, or they couldn't learn civility is what uh, Immanuel Kant says. So it's like all that they're governed by their passions. They can be uh, disciplined and taught to behave, but they can't attain to culture is what he says. Uh, And they can't create things. Well, what you've kind of done is you've set up a little hierarchy and saying, well, no, I have more humanity or I'm a a higher evolved human than these other people. So it's, I can kind of do what I want with them. And you see some just absolutely horrendous uh, things that were done um, all over the world. Uh, based on this um, kind of cosmic hierarchy that's uh, that's established based on denigrating someone else's humanity uh, and somewhat like very surprising activity that doesn't actually you would think how how does this make sense uh, but we are we are creative in our wickedness mm-hmm. that's that's very true um, I think you know I always say the the only way to treat somebody poorly is the first de- without guilt is to first dehumanize them. Yeah. So we see this, you know, in order for someone to feel less guilty, they have to make the object or who they're engaging less human. That is slavery. What was the thing? We were three fifths of a person to, to take our strip away. Our personhood was to strip away the guilt of them treating us the way they they treat us. Uh, if yeah. you think about like, uh, the the abortion argument that there's a major push to say this isn't a baby, this is a fetus. Because if it is a person, mm-hmm. then it brings a level of guilt to yeah. harm a person that looks like you or that bears the image of God just like you. So it, it is really big to how we frame that image of God conversation because if we don't see people as fellow image bearers, we give our life, ourselves the license to treat them um, any way we want without guilt because they're not human like us. Yeah. And some of it is just, I don't, I, surprising is the only word that I can think of. And and I don't mean to just kind of cast aspersion, but uh, there's a, there was a law in Louisiana. It was a concub- concubinage law in a so predominantly Christian uh, environment. There's a law where you can have concubines as long as it's less than, I think it was 80% of your net worth mm. and, and you're like well you don't think this is a person so what are you doing with this non-person like you don't think this is a human being on the same level as you mm-hmm. and yet you are uh, assault like sexually assaulting them mm. uh, so much so that there are abolitionists who are arguing against slavery 
based on the amount of sexual assault happening on plantations. Uh, so Henry Highland Garnett does that. Maria Stewart does it. David Ruggles. They all make this reference to, hey, look at all this. Look at all these marriages that are being absolved, all these uh, all this adultery that's taking place, all this rape that's taking place. Um, but these are this is happening with folks who are like, yeah, and this person I'm assaulting, they're not fully human like I am. And you're like, wait, what? That doesn't, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's a great point to bring up because there is a hypersexualization around black bodies uh, throughout history. And it is almost as if um, there is a reworking of history, not to see, not to understand that one of the most uh, uh, consistent perpetuators of violence against and sexualizing black bodies was not black people, <laughs> but it was slave masters who who raped um, women and men. Um, and so, uh, can you talk a little bit? Uh, I, I want to definitely. Um, make sure people that are listening, if you have trauma around this, that you, uh, you, you may need to turn this off, but can you, can you talk about a, a little bit about like that research? Cause I think most people don't know about that. And in, in turn, they have kind of this, this view that is not helpful. Like the reason why families were split up, the reason why th there's so many things, um, around that history that most people don't know. Yeah, it's really, it's real, it's really tragic, and I would say even embarrassing. Uh, some of the things that happened. Um, so, if you've ever seen Birth of a Nation, the first Birth of a Nation, not the one about Matt Turner, but the one from like nineteen something, uh, early nineteen hundreds, you see it's like this man in blackface is chase is like running around chasing this uh, woman, and she's trying to get away from him. And there are a number of tropes that that is echoing uh, from uh, tropes being a literary device, a, a depiction, a way of depicting people. Um, and so for black men, it typically fell into either what we would call the Mandingo trope or the uh, Sambo trope. So Sambo you've seen in Looney Tunes movies. I mean, Looney Tunes films from the 80s and 70s of, you know, some man playing and dan uh, playing the piano, eating watermelon, playing keys, and, and dancing for his master. Uh, the Mandingo, though, is the one who's like sexually pursuing and a threat to, uh, you know, the um, non the non slaves, the non black folk. Uh, and yet, the similar thing for black women, similar tropes. We have the Mammy figure and the Jezebel. The Jezebel being depicted as this black woman who's a seductress and just overpowers her master with her you know, feminine wileys and the mammy figure being like a secondary mother figure. Um, and these are uh, ways of showing that, I mean, it's kind of, honestly, it's just echoing what I said about, uh, you know, our folks with darker, huge skin, black skin, just governed by their passions and mm -hmm. unable to restrain them. Are they just these like kind of beastie, bestial figures that you have to, uh, you know, corral and uh, restrain or they're going to ruin society. Um, it's kind of just echoing that, but maybe about 200, almost 300 years later, just repeating that same kind of language. Mm, yeah, that's, that is uh, definitely important for our audience to know uh, and how people were portrayed in that time and how those those portrayals still affect how people are viewed now. 
um, to, to den um, denigrate their their identity and personhood. Um, so I thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, what other things that we haven't talked about around theological anthropology that you would want our audience to know um, that you think is important for for them to to know about the subject? Yeah, I would say two the two things that I I think are pretty pertinent that people need to um, kind of maybe spend more time thinking about. One would be the issue of how identity is formed. Um, and we tend to think of ourselves as kind of autonomous or self-derived, but theological anthropology is the first thing you are is a creature uh, who is loved and upheld by God. Like that's the most important thing about you. Um, and that's not to denigrate or diminish any of your other, you know, unique facets of, of who you are. I'm from the greatest city in the world, you know, outside Chicago. There's, I'm sorry to anyone else who's not from there, but that's a wonderful way that God has made me with a love for deep dish pizza and the Chicago Cubs and, you know, a fan of Michael Jordan. No, I'm, I'm also joking. But there are unique things about you that are good, uh, particular things about you, your height, your eye color, your, you know, hair texture. Um, but all those things are indicative, I would say, of the love and care of God, the one who has formed you uh, and loves and numbers the hairs on your head. And it's important to think of yourself as someone who is known and loved by God. The second thing I would say is how we how we think and talk about disability, which ties into theological anthropology a bit. Um, we tend to think that human capacities uh, are indicative of usefulness. And so people without those capacities are less useful and therefore less valuable. Um, and so, for example, if someone can't speak, we think, well, how can they pray? How can they interact with God? Someone who can't doesn't have my level of cognition, how can they have a meaningful relationship with God? And I think uh, it's important to pay attention to how we talk about disability and how we think about folks who have disabilities, because that's not a problem um, that that is not a problem on God's end of the you know spectrum. He tells Moses pretty blatantly in Exodus 4, who made you? So don't tell me what I can and can't do in and through you. And I think that there are ways in which we interact with those who have disabilities that should be uh, reflective of the fact that God is manifesting his word, his rule and his presence through them. Uh, and so there are it's not just that I need to go out and serve someone who's blind or serve someone who um, is deaf, but that they have. I need them. Um, I need them to show me things about God. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, what books would you recommend on this subject and what, how can people find you on social media? All right. Um, some books I would recommend. That's good. Uh, John Swinton has a book called Becoming Friends of Time, which is about disability and it's just, it's expensive, but it's really good. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my beloved advisor, may his work flourish in perpetuity. And, uh, Mark Cortez has a couple books on Christological anthropology. That is why it's important to look at Jesus as the as the kind of foundation of what it means to be human. And so he has two books. One is called Resourcing uh, Christological Anthropology. Um, he has actually three or four books on it, but so I won't name them all. But Mark Cortez would be another name to look out for. And then uh, Rowan Williams has a little book called Being Human, which is really good. Uh, it's short, it's, but it, it's, it's really good. Um, and Francis Young, Francis with an E-S, has some good stuff on on being human and disability as well. 
Uh, if you want to find me on social media, it's the, my handle is at uh, Danny Hills 33. Um, Cause there are a lot of Daniel Hills out there. So D A N N Y H I L L S 33. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Hill for joining us. It's been a wonderful time. I appreciate you for taking the time to be with us to talk about what it means to be human. Um, and also I loved how you fleshed out the end about how it connects to those who have disabilities because I think people don't often think of that in the conversation so I think thank you for including that well this has been another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast uh, thank you for tuning in remember you can get our book our curriculum through Eyes of Color a contextualized guide to helping you know what you believe and why on our website you can take online courses and you can become a monthly financial partner um, all at Jew3project.org and uh, remember here at the Jew 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.